Today we're going to continue our summer series on the parables that are found in the New Testament. I'm going to continue with Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, also known as the parable of the rich fool. So let's go ahead and take a look at those verses. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Tonight we're going to actually talk about God's provision, which is a very large subject, so we're going to focus on a few of the smaller details that we might be able to apply in our daily life. Originally, this parable was triggered by Jesus from someone in the crowd who was seeking for Jesus to intervene in a family financial affair, and ostensibly the man's motive was greed and covetousness, but Jesus took that opportunity to speak on a few larger issues and he correlated God's provision with God's timing. One of my favorite words in the English language is actually a Latin word. It's viatica. And for those of you who are trained in the Catholic Church, you would understand that to mean the last rites that a priest gives to somebody on the verge of death. Viatica, the last rites, the final communion. But what's interesting about that word is that it also means provision. The provision someone takes when they're traveling on a journey. So I've always been fascinated that in this one word, we have both a reference to provisions that a traveler takes for a journey and the last rites that someone takes before they enter into eternal life. And then I came to understand that from the moment we're born until the moment we die, we are all essentially on a journey. And when the Lord calls us home, he actually has provided for us a way to enter into heaven. So in that sense, his provision is not just limited to our daily needs. He provides for us each and every day, but he also provides for us a way to enter into heaven. It's viatica. Let's take a look at God's provision in verses 16 to 17. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Notice, there is absolutely no mention that the Lord had blessed him with that land to begin with. Notice how there is no thankfulness for a large harvest. In fact, it would appear as though the man himself brought forth the harvest from his work alone. So how often is it that we forget about God's grace and lay claim to our own accomplishments as if we did them with no help. We tend to be very self-sufficient in our thinking. We always tend to think that we've accomplished this or accomplished that, 
due to our own efforts and our own skills. And since the harvest was seemingly a result of the rich man's work alone in his mind, it follows that he would feel completely justified taking a break from the work and seek to fill his various appetites, eating, drinking, and merrymaking. At this point, he does not seek to glorify God with his abundance, nor with his work, but instead he seeks his own interests. He was not rich toward God. And this is an important theme that we're going to come back to later today. He was not rich toward God. I learned a long time ago that it's a very important exercise for me to learn not to ascribe to God those things that are not His, but by all means, give Him glory and credit for everything that belongs to God. Do we have a tendency to be self-sufficient? Do we offer measure our activities on our own terms, when to work, when to eat, when to rest, when to recreate? We seemingly make those decisions moment by moment. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So I thought in preparation of this weekend's topic, I ran through my life and tried to pick out instances where God's provision were, were very, very evident. And in fact, I can come up with seemingly hundreds of them. Um, the first example is when I was stranded in Death Valley. My cousin and I, we grew up traveling together and taking adventures, camping. We hiked the Grand Canyon rim to rim in one day. We uh, uh, did all manner of fishing and huge expeditions, always each adventure bigger than the one previous. So we concocted this idea that we'd go to Death Valley for about a week. I had a four-wheel drive, a Jeep, and we would tool around on the boulder and the rocks and go off on the cliffs and what have you. One night, it was late, we just threw out the, the uh, tent and set up camp real quick and slept. And all night, we heard little rustling all around the perimeter of the tent Wake up the next morning, we found we had put the tent right smack dab in the middle of a nest of tarantulas, and the, all the holes were there. So obviously at night, they were coming out and tickling the tent. But in any case, on that trip, we decided to take a vow of silence for a 24-hour from sundown to sundown to honor God, to be able to spend the time in the desert, in contemplation, in prayer, uh, to honor God. So that night came, went to sleep, came up, packed the whole tent, the whole thing, back into the Jeep, right out in the middle of nowhere, and we're camping next to the singing sand dunes, and those are huge, massive sand dunes that the sand churns, churns constantly, and it actually moans, and they call them the singing sand dunes. Nobody's out there. The Jeep was dead, wouldn't even start, wouldn't even pretend to turn over. Had no problems with the battery before that, had no problems with the battery after that, but the day we took a vow of silence... It's the day the Jeep is dead. We're stranded in the middle of nowhere. So we prayed silently. My cousin, even remembering Jericho, marched around the Jeep. He's actually <laughs> in prayer <laughs> three times. And he's actually a pastor now in, uh, back in Michigan, so he's a faithful man. Um, but that didn't work either. So, well, there we are. I'm not going to talk, though. We made a vow to God. And wouldn't you know it, within five, ten minutes, out of nowhere, way over there comes a car driving, 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 and literally came straight to us. It was two women. 
We still didn't talk, but they realized what we need. They got in their car, disappeared. 15 minutes later, they had found another camp that had jumper cables. Came back, gave us the cables. We jumped and we were on our way. But we did not violate God's, uh, the vow we made to God and God provided for us. And you think that would have been it? No. So later that day, about an hour before sunset, we're zooming around on one of those roads. It's all rocks and boulders. And the boulders were really big. So when the tire, the back rear tire, just basically blew up and shredded, and you couldn't feel it because all the boulders we were driving over, so we just kept driving. And the reason we stopped finally is because of the burning smell. And uh, so we pull over. No big deal. My cousin goes to get the, the jack of my Jeep to change the tire. Not a big deal. I knew it was a big deal because I had taken that jack out of the Jeep months before and it was still at home. It wasn't in the car. Yeah. So there we are again, not talking and stranded once again. Wouldn't you, have, wouldn't you know that literally five minutes, what comes around the corner and right smack to us was another Jeep with the special jack that you need to change the tire. God's provision for us that day was very clear. But we were seeking to honor him and glorify him in our silence. We didn't break the vow, but he took care of us. So oftentimes... His provision always comes at the perfect time, in the perfect amount, and it's actually measured specifically for you. His provision helps enforce His will in your life. His provision keeps us directed towards Him. It's never too much. It's never too little. It's perfectly measured. Sometimes that provision is a yes. Sometimes that provision is a no, and we're going to talk about that. But even in a no, he makes a provision for you. Each and every one of us are very different. We have different strengths, different weaknesses. So a provision for me would be a different provision for you. But God is working all things to his glory to pull us forward, closer and closer to Christ. Interestingly, I hadn't prepared this for tonight, but tonight uh, this other provision came to mind, and I'm going to share it with you real quickly. Um, way back, five, six years ago, uh, we uh, had the Crenshaw ministry, actually, and we've talked about that over time for many, many years. And uh, this came to me today. Uh, I remember the very first Saturday outreach we did in the Crenshaw area, where we would feed people and pray with them and seek to share Christ with the people God brought to us. The very first time. How much food do you bring for that? Do you bring food for 10, 20, 50, 100, 5? Who knows? The very first time, who knows how many people God was going to bring. But I tell you, you don't want people to come and you share Christ with them and have them go away hungry, right? Especially a non-believer and especially someone who is hungry and who needs the food. So it was very important we had just the right amount and because you don't want to waste it either. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget that first time we set up our tables, we served maybe about 20 people. At the very end, that was the end of the line, and there was just enough food in there for one more serving. And I remember this very clearly. Someone said, Tim, go ahead and eat. You haven't eaten. And there's just this much left. Finish it off. I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because I can get in the car later and go to McDonald's. I don't need to go ahead and eat that if it's meant for somebody else. And sure enough, one last guy, I will never forget, turned that corner, walked down the driveway, one of the ones that either was invited by us or was invited by somebody came and ate that last meal. The very last person. That provision was perfectly measured. 
That's how God works when you believe in him and show that you are trying to honor him in your actions. God will never leave any lack. One other quick story of God's provision was also in the desert where I was stranded. We're going to talk about the Israelites. Uh, Rick mentioned it when they were in the desert. So there's yet two more desert stories coming up. I'll keep this one real quick. I was stranded in the Sahara Desert in Egypt many years ago. I was uh, trekking through the five oases of the eastern Sahara Desert, leaving Cairo, working my way back down to Luxor. And out in those oases, it goes deeper and deeper into the desert. And what I refer to as a highway was really a one-lane dirt road, basically, in many cases. Dunes to the left of me, the black desert to the right. I was with a small group of people that I had met in Cairo. It was one of the toughest and most exhilarating traveling I'd ever done. Um, But let me just tell you, very hot, very, very, very hungry. There's no restaurant, there's no food, there's nothing there. And then you go from oasis to oasis, basically they all had, they were built around a spring, a hot spring in, in most of the cases, and a little village, and that's where these people lived. So here we were stranded at this oasis in the deepest part of the Sahara, no ride, no food. You could be a millionaire, and it didn't mean anything. Nobody cared. If there aren't resources, you're not going to buy them. There were no resources. So... Everybody decided to wait by the side of the road and wait on a miracle that somebody would come by and pick us all up and take us the six, seven hours to the next oasis. And so I and a friend decided, well, no, that's just not good enough. So we decided just to go ahead and walk through the village. I knocked on one door, walked through there, through there, and went to one door I knocked. And the host could speak English, brought, let us come in, wouldn't discuss our needs at all, because the protocol was, oh no, I'm going to welcome you with a five-course meal. So starving, we knocked on the door, he walked him, out came the courses, out came the courses, out came in a cool sitting room, and periodically I'd think of my poor friends languishing in the heat and hunger on the highway, and here I was, being provided for, graciously and once we finished that great meal he said by the time you get back to the road there will be a pickup truck to take you and your whole group to the next oasis and sure enough when we made our way back full and satisfied and my other friends that were there are like where have you been oh let me tell you and here comes the pickup truck so it was really really interesting I realized through that experience of God's provision That it's easier for God to use someone who is working, someone who is in action, rather than someone who is inactive, right? My friends waiting by the road, yes, they were blessed. Through our actions, we were able to provide a ride. But they did not receive the extra benefit of a full, rich, five-course meal, home-cooked, Egyptian, authentic. They took no action to put themselves in the right place for God's grace. And therefore, God's provision could not be expressed to them. They were much like the rich man who decided, hey, I'm done working. I've done enough. Right? I recently became aware of someone who was struggling life and in faith and and the complaint and expressed a desire for God to speak into his life. And the complaint, you hear this from many, many people often, is, oh, I just need God to speak into my life and direct me, tell me what I should do. And I thought about it, and it, realized, and I, it just dawned on me. And I, my answer was, 
I suggested maybe God already has done that, which wasn't the answer that was being hoped for. So often God reveals his will to us in prayer, through scripture, through other faithful brothers and sisters, but we don't listen. And when we do hear his response, we may continue to struggle because it's not what we wanted to hear. In fact, in my HCMI classes, I always encourage people to train themselves to listen to God's very whisper. To be faithful in relationship with God is not just to hear him, but feel his intent. Hear him even whisper and respond rather than wait for a shout or a huge chorus. And especially if you're in a situation that God may want to discipline you for, I personally would rather make that correction in my life the second I'm made aware of it, rather than continue to wait and be in a situation where I need greater and greater discipline. The rich man is an example of this to the extreme. He took everything that God provided, did not acknowledge God, hoarded it for himself, and decided he would simply provide for himself in the way that he chose to be provided for, which meant no more work and partying every day. So in effect, what he did was he placed himself above God. He knew better how to provide for himself than God did. And so often when we struggle, our first and natural inclination to say to somebody who shares a struggle with us is, oh, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. That's an easy thing to say. So often the subtext is, I hope God gives you what you want. And when you see them later, you say, did God, did, did God answer your prayer? What's actually being said is, did you get what you wanted? Mostly. Search your hearts. What's interesting is that God always answers prayers. Always answers prayers. Sometimes it's with a yes. Sometimes it's with a no. Sometimes it could even be not now. But he always answers prayers. So rather than go to someone who's struggling and say, did God answer your prayer? One could actually say, how did God answer your prayer? Right? Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. So that means the no is also for your good as well as the yes. And sometimes it's a question of measurement. The answer is yes, but this much. Not this much, but also not this much. Perfectly sized and measured for you. A personal struggle of mine, actually, over the years has been to know what God wants for me. I don't want to waste my time desiring and praying for and hoping for something that is not mine to have. Many of us carry these desires throughout our entire lives. The answer was no years ago. You're not listening to that, and you're still harping on the same thing. I personally want my desires to be trimmed down so that I only want what God wants for me. But I'm going to tell you, I want everything that God wants for me. So I'm not trying to be, you know, 
falsely humble. No, whatever God's measurement for me is, I want it all. Right? Doesn't that make sense? But I don't want anything less, and I don't want to waste my time wanting something that is not for me. As we grow in relationship to Jesus, our very desires change to be more in line with what the Lord wants for us and not what we want for ourselves. Even in this parable, we said that Jesus asks, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? This is really interesting. That was outside the scope of what God's work for Jesus was to do. Yes, he could have judged very easily. He could have been an arbiter very easily. But he did say, who appointed me a judge over you guys? It wasn't in God's will for Jesus to apply his work in that fashion. God's word and Jesus' life are economical. And by economical, I mean they were perfectly ordered. In fact, economy means perfectly ordered. Jesus, when he came here, he did not disperse himself just because he could heal the entire country. Did you see him walking and touching everybody and healing them? No. Although he could have done that with a word. What he did was, very specifically, only the things God wanted him to do, and he spoke only the words that God gave him to speak. His life is the perfect measurement of the provision that God made for us. I would love to apply that in my own life, to speak only the things God wants me to speak, right? And only do the things God wants me to do. That's all a part of our growth in Christ, right? It's all a part of our sanctification as we grow forth. God's provision allows us to do that. It propels us forward. Even God's word, the Bible itself, is perfectly constructed, There is not one extra letter in it, neither is there anything missing. God's word is a perfect provision. God's word is sufficient. It requires no additional revelation. You need nothing more than what's in the Bible. God's word is also complete. It's infallible. By infallibility, I mean you can apply what's in the Bible and you will not be led wrong. You can make no mistake. It's infallible. God's word is sufficient, inerrant, infallible, clear. God's provision is perfect in every way. And we know that Jesus is God's word made flesh. So he is perfect in every way. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus says. And the, the usage of The name I am is a direct reference to the name that God claimed for himself. When Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? The answer was, I am sent you. Jesus actually made seven I am statements. The very first one, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. That is so significant on every level. And we're now going to look at another one of God's fascinating provisions, the Israelites in the desert after being led out of Egypt, the manna. 
the bread of life. So I'm going to look over to Exodus 16 and read a few verses there. I'm going to start actually in the middle of verse 1. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, so really, they were just fresh out of Egypt. 400 years in Egypt, the latter years enslaved, just to keep that in mind, they've witnessed God's miraculous delivery. And here we are, the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the, this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days because God wanted them to preserve the Sabbath. So they did, he did not want them to work on the Sabbath. Now manna was like coriander seed. It was white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That's also Exodus 16. Wafers made with honey. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars. They boiled it in pots and they made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like cakes baked with oil. So that may sound delicious, right? We eat honey graham crackers. We eat, you know, biscuits and honey all the time. So that sounds good at the outset, but let's see what happened. The interesting thing about this provision, Exodus 16 also, they gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, which is a dry unit of measurement, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Some had a greater need than others. God provided that need specifically measured for each individual. Nobody lacked and nobody had excess. God's provision is perfectly balanced and perfectly measured for your need. Now it's interesting, they were instructed not to save any for the next day. Don't overcollect with the thing in your heart, the thought in your mind that I'm going to save this for tomorrow because maybe there won't be manna tomorrow. And in fact, if you did, what you kept overnight would develop worms and stink. So it was inedible. So the interesting thing about God's provision, he wanted them to rely on, on him daily. He enforced his will through his, his provision. They had to trust God daily. Numbers chapter 11, it starts to get a little more interesting. Verse 4, now the rabble, rabble being a boisterous, loud, troublemaking group, that's what rabble means, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept and said, Oh, what we had, oh that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. 
So here, they would almost prefer a life of enslavement just so they could have the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, the fish that cost nothing. Just like the rich man was more interested in fulfilling his own appetite rather than continuing a posture of work towards God, honoring God with his work. He had enough to fulfill his own appetites. The Israelites are basically saying the same thing. Anyway, Numbers 21.5 actually was the whole point of my bringing this up. It's what I refer to as the biggest insult to God in the entire Old Testament. It's my personal opinion. And the people spoke against God's and, God again, and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And here we go. This cuts to the very core. And we loathe this worthless food. New King James. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. NIV. And we detest this miserable food. So here we have three different translations. We loathe this worthless food. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. And we detest this miserable food. This is all in direct relation to the bread of life. God's very manna. His very provision. Not just we, but our very soul. Not just I don't like it. My core of my being. Not just dislike loathes, despises, hates. So now we have the core of my being despises and hates not just your manna, because that's what they called it, but your miserable, worthless food. You cannot get a greater insult to God and his provision than, I, than in these verses. Again, that's my personal opinion. When I came across these years ago, I was stunned. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of similarities between the manna and the parable of the rich fool. In the first case, God's provision is loathed. In the second, the provision itself is cherished. So much so it's idolatrous, detached from God's abundance to be used as we see fit. Do we loathe his provision for us in our lives? Do we sometimes think, oh gee, I wish I had more, or different, or sooner, or later? Have we truly accepted on our heart the provision that God has set forth for us? The second uh, comparison is we have two extremes here. In the first, in the manna, we say to the Lord, your provision is not good enough. And in the second, we say, your provision is not yours. It's not from you. It's from me and the result of my efforts. In both cases, we place ourselves above God, claiming that we either know better or, or know more. And in these verses, in these examples, this attitude actually led to death. Numbers 21, 5, 9. And the people spoke against Moses and, and against God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. 
so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. This is really interesting here. Pray to the Lord that he take, this, take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This provision of God actually emphasized the miraculous aspect of his grace by the power of faith. Where else have we seen that? Where else have we seen someone being lifted up on a pole? Right. John three fourteen, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so much the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. All we have to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, and we will be saved. Fix our heart on him. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Jesus Christ is God's greatest provision for us. He makes a way for us in this life, and prepares a way for us to get to the next, he is viatica. He is our provision now for the journey. He is our provision to go into heaven. Interestingly enough, the third I am statement in the Gospel of John, I am, first he says in the first one, I am the bread of life. The third statement is, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture, a direct reference to provision. Interestingly, the first and the third I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the gate. That's viatica. I am the provision for your daily needs. I am the gate through which you will enter in to true pasture. He is both the bread of life, our manna, and he is that gate. Proverbs 30, 8, 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? That's what the rich fool did. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Brothers and sisters, God's provision is perfectly timed, perfectly measured for you. Right? When you share your struggles with others and you pray for your needs, be willing to accept a no as well as a yes. God's working his will in you for his good pleasure and for his glory through his provision. So I have seven points to take away tonight. Number one, be rich toward God. Remember the rich fool at the very end of that parable? He was not rich toward God. So I'm saying, be rich toward God. Acknowledge that everything is from Him. So just as a side note, in terms of tithing, we often think, oh, you know, I tithe X amount. I'm giving that to God. No. 100% of what you have 
belongs to God. He's allowing you to keep the rest. Number two, be rich toward God. Approach him with an attitude of thankfulness. Accept what he provides for you wholeheartedly without grumbling in your heart, trusting that his perfect will is unfolding in your life. And I'm not speaking just materially, but also spiritually. His provision directs your personal spiritual growth. How he provides, when he provides, what he provides. The goal, of course, is to help us become more and more like Christ. So that when you look at me as an example, you see me less and less. I should diminish so that you see Christ more and more. That should be true with all of us. Number three. Hmm. Be rich toward God. Approach him with humility. He allows us our provision. What do you think number four is? Right. Be rich toward God. Ask God to help you glorify him and not yourself with the provision that he gives you. Number five, what do you think? Be rich toward God, yes. Keep active and working regardless of circumstance. And by working, I don't mean going to a job per se. Working for his glory, serving each other. Everything you do, you can do it for God's glory. Luke 12, 35, 37. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home with the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Be rich toward God, keep active and working. The rich fool did not do that. God is, cannot, cannot work with somebody who's doing nothing. Number six, be rich toward God. Ultimately, what does that mean? Love him, yes. Love him first, love him the most, love him with your life, love him with your blessings, love him with everything he gives you, love him with your very breath, and love his people. Period. Romans says, love must be sincere. Yes. And finally, number seven, the most important of them all. Be rich toward God. Share his son, Jesus Christ. His greatest provision for you. Share that provision just as you share all your other provisions. Be rich toward God. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you and we thank you for this time that we can freely and openly study your word and encourage each other to grow in faith and in acts of service to honor and glorify you. We pray that each and every one of us will accept completely your provision for us. We pray that we glorify you in, in enjoying that provision. 
We pray that you would keep us close to you and allow us to love you and be rich towards you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.